And some people believe that he wrote 14 because they attribute Hebrews to him as well. Whichever one you want to use, it really doesn't matter, but you see that's right on the break line, that, that half of the books in the New Testament were written by the Apostle Paul. We have been looking at his longest letter that he wrote for several months now, uh, the letter to the church at Rome. He wrote this letter near the end of his third missionary trip. He was on his way back towards Jerusalem when he gets to Corinth. It's winter time. It's not a good time to be traveling. And so he stays in a friend's house, and he begins to write this letter to the church at Rome. Um, first 11 chapters, he gives a very thorough exposition of what it, salvation is all about and why God sent his son uh, to, to save us, to redeem us. And then when you get to chapters 12 and 13 and uh, up through chapter 15, verse 13, he, he talks about what it means to put all of our faith into, you know, where the rubber meets the road and the practicality of being a Christian. Um, and now he comes, well, it's his longest letter, longest exposition, longest exhortation. It's also his longest conclusion. Um, he's kind of like one of those preachers that we used to hear way back when. They would say, and in conclusion, and about five times later, they would say, and in conclusion, and so I learned to leave that word out of my notes just in case there was something else I wanted to say. Uh, and I, you won't hear me saying in conclusion until I'm concluded. Uh, but it used to be a joke among preachers that when they say in conclusion, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, but he has this long uh, exit to this letter that begins in the 14th verse of chapter 15, goes clear to the end of chapter 16. Um, as he is writing his conclusion, he is giving to them the explanation as to why he has written this letter to them. And in writing why he's writing, it reveals a great deal about the heart of this man, the heart of a missionary. What's a missionary? Perhaps the best definition is the simplest one that I found in my word processor. That's someone on a religious mission. Someone on a religious mission. Paul was a missionary. My first trip overseas to the Ukraine, I went on that trip with uh, Carl Adams, who was the director of foreign missions for Grace International at that particular time, and uh, uh, Pastor Gwen Vaughn from Seal Beach, California. Carl had a phrase that I heard him repeat numerous times over the years that uh, I knew him. I don't think it was original with him, and, and I know that in about 2000, and that was long after I'd met Carl Adams, a guy wrote a book and used it as the title. But every time that Carl would preach somewhere in the United States representing Grace International Missions, he would either start or conclude his message with this statement. You're either a missionary or someone who needs one. You're either a missionary or someone who needs one. The great commission that was given to the disciples is a commission given to all of us. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Making disciples. Go share the gospel, tell the good news, making disciples. You and I are missionaries. We are on a religious mission commissioned by God wherever we go. And while there are some who are called to go to foreign fields or go to different places in the United States out of their comfort zone, we are all called to share the gospel of Jesus Christ right where we live. Paul was set aside along with Barnabas to, to leave Antioch and to go on this trip and find places where people had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in his going, and in his years of ministry, he modeled for us the heart of a missionary. The kind of heart that every one of us should allow the Holy Spirit to shape within us. 
As we go through this text this morning, I'm going to point out four of those characteristics, along with several other things that the Apostle Paul points out to the church there in Rome. If I'm reading what Paul is saying from the right perspective, Paul did not write this letter because these folks did not know the truths that he expounded. Uh, my pages are out of order. I skipped some notes. Where'd they go? They're gone. So where's, I need a copy of the notes to find out where I'm at. Let's begin in Romans 15, 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Paul says, I am convinced that you are full of knowledge. You are full of knowledge. It's kind of an interesting statement. Filled with the knowledge of the things of God. It's, you know, as, as you read through... Um, this book of Romans, sometimes we come to the conclusion that Paul was writing to these people about things they did not know about. But you go back to chapter 1, and he says to them, the, your faith is known throughout the whole world. This is a strong church. They, are, they, they have a great maturity in their faith. They've come to this place where they understand they, you are filled full of goodness. Filled full of goodness. Um, so what's the next, put the next slide up there, please. Thank you. Their motives were right. They're filled full of goodness, and their motives are right. Goodness. That is a uh, very interesting word it's one of the fruits of the spirits that's listed in galatians chapter 5 goodness but you do know that goodness is the very nature of god you remember in, in exodus when, when moses was on mount sinai he said god i want to see your glory god says well you can't see my glory and live but i'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and then my goodness will pass by you my goodness will pass by you. The psalmist in several places talks about God's very nature is goodness, kindness. It, it's uh, doing the right thing. And he said, I, I understand you folks, you're full of goodness. Your motives are right. You, that means they are uh, showing the, the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives. These are, are good people. Great people. He said, you're full of goodness. Then he said, I'm convinced that you're filled with knowledge. That you're filled with knowledge. Knowledge of the things of God. He didn't write to these folks because they didn't know about the things he expounded on. They knew they were saved by works. Or saved by grace, not by works. They knew it was a gift of God. They knew that even though they didn't deserve anything from God, he made them his children, dearly loved children, fully accepted. One of the most important things for us to know is this, God loves us. Put the next slide up there. I'm convinced you're filled with knowledge. They had a full gamut of the knowledge of God. They understood these things about faith. They understood these things about grace. They understood about sanctification, that they were in the process of being made more like Jesus Christ. He, they, they, they knew all about the dealings with Adam's nature. that Paul talked about in Romans 7. We all know something about that. We're saved, but we still have these moments when the old nature rises up and wants to do what the old nature did. And, and they understood all of these things. And so when Paul is writing those things, it's not like they were 
brand new to them. They're, he's confident, they're filled with the knowledge that they knew that one day, one day they were going to be glorified as they went into the presence of Jesus Christ when everything is culminated, everything is redeemed, and our life in eternity begins. And then he said, I'm convinced that you're able to instruct one another. You're able to, to instruct one another. They were competent to counsel. Paul acknowledges a degree of maturity in the church at Rome that he did not see in other congregations he wrote to. When he talks about their ability to instruct one another, I'm reminded to the, of the admonitions to the Corinthians. You folks, God gave you all these gifts so that you could build each other up. I'm reminded of what he said to the Ephesians. As he said, God gave these gifts that we might, might, we might mature, not be tossed around by every wind of doctrine. But these folks in, in, in Rome, he, he acknowledges the fact that they are able and they are competent to counsel each other in things of, of righteousness, things of the Word. So they had the right motives. They had complete knowledge. They had a, a full range of spiritual gifts by which they will instruct each other in the faith. So why did he write this letter? He gets to that in verse 15. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Let me give you three simple things out of this context. We could get pretty deep, but I don't want to go real deep. I want to just three things here. We all need reminders from time to time of what we already know. We all need reminders from time to time of what we already know. He said, I have written to you very boldly about some topics by the way of reminder. This next slide is not on your notes. It's a quote from Ray Steadman. And it, he made this observation that uh, one of the proofs of the fall of man is this. We have such a hard time remembering what we want to remember, yet we so easily remember what we want to forget. Have you found that to be true? We have a hard time remembering what we want to remember, yet we so easily remember what we want to forget. Stedman said that's because of the fall of man. We need to be reminded again and again and again of the great themes of the gospel. And the reason for that is, is we live in a world where the airwaves and the media are filled with things that are contrary to truth. These voices are very loud in our culture. And if we keep on listening to them, the temptation is to compromise from the truth and begin to embrace things that sound so logical the way they spin them to us. And we get away from the truth of God's Word. So many voices that pass off opinions of mankind as something to be embraced as an evolving way of life. We could talk about the issues right now going on with abortion where at one time it would have been, it was absolutely illegal. And then Roe versus Wade, and now everybody thinks, not everybody, there's a whole group of people who think that what was reversed is absolutely wrong when it used to be the other way around. The voices of culture. So why do we keep coming back to the main themes of Scripture? To keep our minds pure, to keep our hearts pure before God. Paul wrote in, in Romans 12, we should be transformed 
by the renewing of our mind. He said, present your bodies a living sacrifice and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I believe that's an ongoing process that needs to take place on a daily basis where I feed my mind the truths of the Scripture because there's so many voices that want me to believe something else. Be transformed by the room so that I might do the will of God. The second thing I see in these two verses is this. We all need the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. So the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Sanctified, set apart for religious purposes. Consecrated. It can, be, it can mean to be made pure. And as we've, we, we've talked numerous times about this part of salvation process, being sanctified, being made pure by the grace of God, I want to add something else to this thought of sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Church had the right motive, full of goodness, good deeds, kindness. They had a complete knowledge of what it means to be saved. And they could teach each other these important truths. But one of the dangers in the life of church is we can do church without the Holy Spirit. We can create programs where we create step one, step two, step three, and anybody can step up and do step one, step two, step three. You go through the motions. But if what we are doing is not touched by the power and the unction of the Holy Spirit, there will be no life to it. If it's not touched by the power and the unction of the Holy Spirit, it's just religion. And I don't know about you, but I don't want just to have religion. I want to have something that's life-transforming, something that brings hope, something that brings life, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. I remember reading in the psalm, unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. We need to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit, which this is a reminder of the importance of prayer. It's, it's a reminder to be sanctified. It's a reminder that we need to pray. Jesus said in John chapter 15, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Abide in me. And, and he, in that context, he said, without me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing of eternal and lasting value. We need to be sanctified. We need the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. In these two verses, verses 15 and 16, we see the first attribute that Paul reveals about the heart of a missionary. Paul saw his life and ministry as worship. His life and his ministry was like Romans 12. I present my body a living sacrifice, which is my reasonable act of worship, my reasonable act of service. In verse 15, he said, on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of render, because of the grace of God given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so the offering of Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The part I want to focus on is a minister of Christ Jesus in the priestly service of the gospel. He uses an interesting word and word picture for the description of who he is and why he's writing this. That word minister, normally we would, we would think of, you know, that it was the word that is used many times in, this, in the New Testament as a servant, um, there's two different words, that, other words, but this is not the normal word. The word he uses in this context is the Greek word from which we derive our word liturgy. 
liturgy. Paul linked that word for ministry with the word picture, also describing himself as a priest similar to the Hebrew priest that were given the responsibility of offering the sacrifices on the altar on behalf of the people before God. But in this case, instead of offering lambs and goats, he said, I bring the Gentiles as an offering to the Father, as a sweet-smelling savor. Because God has given to me this ministry, this life of worship, to lead them into relationship as a sacrifice to God. The Apostle Paul did not have an easy life. In case you've never read his story, he had a very difficult life once he became a Christian. In his travels all across the part of the world, God allowed him to suffer all kinds of difficulties, persecutions. His body was beaten several times. He was stoned with rocks. Because he preached Jesus died, rose again, and he's coming again. But in spite of all that, he saw his life as a liturgy, his life as worship to the Lord who had saved him. Everything he did, it's an act of worship to the Father. I want you to think about this. How we see ourselves greatly determines how we live our lives. How we see ourselves greatly determines how we live our lives. If we can see that our lives are intended to be a liturgy, an act of worship, Romans 12, 1 and 2, that's what it says, an act of worship, that we are all on a mission, that everything that I do in the process of living out my life on a daily basis is an act of worship to the Father. A pie baked for your neighbor becomes an offering to God. <coughs> a child held lovingly is a liturgy, an act of worship. An employee treated with dignity is a beatitude. The gospel shared here is a song in heaven. A Sunday school class taught as a sweet fragrance to God. The sacred view of life was a primary characteristic of the heart of Paul. Everything was done to please God. So here's an application point for you and me. I'm on a God-given mission to bring honor to him. The life I live today, the life I have tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, wherever, I'm on a mission to bring honor to God. You say, really? You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25? On that great day, he's going to gather everybody, goats on the left hand, sheep on the right hand. He's going to say to both groups, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. And the response, he says, will come. When did we see you in that shape, Lord? Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. <coughs> Paul understood that wherever he went, wherever he spoke, it was an act of worship to the Father. Number two, Paul had a heart to give God the glory. Paul had a heart to give God the glory. Verse 17, In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. <coughs> Excuse me. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the powers of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Eliquium, or however you want to say that, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Paul is an interesting study. A short man, partially bald, bow-legged, a unique nose, an eyebrow that went clear across his forehead, a unibrow. 
Yet God used that man to touch the world, not just for the day that he lived in, but your life and my life 2,000 years later has been profoundly affected and influenced by this man, the Apostle Paul. Paul does some bragging in these verses. He doesn't brag about how great he is. But what he brags about is what Christ has done through him. Paul gives Jesus credit for three things. Gentiles being saved. The amazing thing is, God called me and used me to preach the gospel in Asia Minor, Greece, even into Europe. Share the gospel where no one had ever taken the gospel before. And people came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That was the work of God. I mean, remember, he was on his way to arrest Christians when Jesus arrested him on the road to Damascus and said, I've chosen this man to be a, an apostle to the Gentiles. He understands whatever happened, it was Jesus through me. Not only did he preach, but God performed signs and wonders through his ministry. Signs and wonders. There were miracles that took place. People were healed. People were brought back to life. Remember the guy that fell out of the window when Paul preached until midnight? He's my model for preaching. He preached till midnight. And the guy fell out of the window and broke his neck. Paul lays hands on him. He comes back to life. Second Corinthians, Paul wrote wherever he went. He prayed for people. Miracles took place. Because Jesus worked through him. Thank you, Don. Number C, he preached in cities that covered 1,400 miles from his home base to the furthest place away in sandals. 1,400 miles. Not in a plane. Now in a plane, that's about just a little over two hours in a jet. He didn't have a jet. He didn't have a car. But in his sandals, 1,400 miles one way. And he made three trips. He didn't go to that far, farthest place to all of those trips. From Jerusalem all the way to Elyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. That was a nation across the Adriatic Sea from Italy. The Adriatic Sea is a finger of the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, a few years ago, that place, that parcel of land was called Yugoslavia. Now Yugoslavia has been divided into five other different countries um, since then. But if you want to look on a map, and you can figure out he went all the way from Jerusalem, clear down on the lower east side of the Mediterranean Sea, all the way to he could look over and see Italy um, across the Adriatic Sea. A remarkable story. He gave all the glory to Jesus. How different that is from so much of what we see in our culture today. Too often, people in our culture are like the Little League baseball player who swings with all of his might and he barely skims the top of the ball, and it bounces in front of him and bounces towards the pitcher. But he takes off running for all he's worth. And if you've ever watched the Little League game, you know how this goes. The pitcher picks up the ball, and he throws it to the first base, but it goes over the first baseman's head, and it goes into right field. And so the little kid keeps running to second base. And as he's rounding second base, the ball comes into the second baseman, and he throws it to the third baseman, only it goes over his head. And so this little kid runs around third base and he comes all the way home. He slides in. He's safe. And he said, I've just hit a home run. <laughs> Errors all the way. Sometimes we as people, we are kind of like that little kid taking credit. Where God is the one who deserves the credit. 
We step up to the plate for Jesus, barely tip the ball, but somehow he manages to get us around the bases. Paul was a man who could have become insufferable with his bragging. He could have. Hey, did I ever tell you about what happened to me down in Lystra when those Jews that came from Antioch and Iconium? I was being stoned for preaching Jesus and not backing down at their threats. It seemed like I was always getting stoned. Barnabas, they never did anything to his pretty face. It was always me that they were stoning. They were stoning it, and I wasn't flinching. But then some guy got in a good shot and knocked me down. I'm sure it would have killed most men, but not me. So there I was lying underneath those stones, and, and Barnabas and all the rest of them, they're going to pieces thinking I was dead, but I wasn't. I was still alive. I kind of laughing underneath my breath. What's a few rocks being thrown your way? God needs more men like me. Now, Paul didn't say that. But Paul could have said that. He could have been a bragger, but he didn't brag about any of those things. He talks about them, but Jesus is the one who brought him through. Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 6.14, But be far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It was all about Jesus for Paul. And so should it be for you and I. Our mission in life is sacred and the glory belongs to Jesus. Paul had a heart that dreams. Paul had a heart that dreams. Verse 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. That's a quote from Isaiah 52, 15, by the way. Those who have never been told will see and those who have never heard. He had a passion, maybe even obsession, to preach Jesus to people who had never heard the story. He'd already covered hundreds of miles in his three trips, but he still has plans and visions for more places. We have read already in Romans, of his desire to make it to the city of seven hills to meet the people of the Church of Rome, to mutually encourage one another, to share the gospel with those who'd never heard in that city. Reading verses 22 through 29. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Why? Because I find places I want to preach. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions... And since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. So his plans to go to Italy, to go to Rome, meet with these folks, and then keep on going. He wants to go into Spain. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, indeed they owed it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings, they also ought to be of service to them in material blessings. Where Paul was traveling around, he would take in an offering for the people in Jerusalem because when you became a, a Christian as a Jew, the Jewish culture excommunicated you. You were good as dead in their eyes. They just no longer would do business with you. They're no longer welcome at home if your parents would disown you, if they did not become converted. So there were people in need of 
finances, people in need of things to food and things to eat. So Paul is taking this money, and he's committed to go to Jerusalem. One of the things I like about Paul is he kept his commitments to the best of his ability. He kept his commitments. And he says the Gentiles owed it to the Jews because it was through the Jews that Jesus came. Verse 28, When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that I come to you. I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now we know that Paul eventually makes it to Rome. Not the way that he planned. But he did offer, he delivered the offering there that he collected from the Gentiles to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. However, the Jews that were opposed to Christianity came after Paul, so to speak, and he probably would have been killed by a mob. In fact, the scripture says some of them had stones in their hands. But as this riot breaks out, the Roman centurion sends in his, his regiment and they put Paul in protective custody. And uh, when they went to take him to trial, Paul said, I'm a Roman citizen and I want to appeal to Caesar. So they keep him in protective custody for two years in Caesarea. And then there's the, the trip to Rome, um, the shipwreck. It took them months to go from Caesarea to Rome because of the shipwreck in winter. When he gets to Rome, he's in chains 24-7, chained to a Roman guard. His plan did not go the way that he dreamed. I don't know if he ever made it to Spain. There's some scholars who believe that there's some kind of proof that he, in between his two imprisonments in Rome, that he made a trip into Spain. I don't know if he did or didn't. But I do know this. God knew it was in his heart. God knew it was in his heart. I say that because you remember David said, God, I want to build you a dwelling place for the Ark of the Covenant. I want to build a, a, a house for your presence on the hill in Jerusalem. You remember God said, that's great that's in your heart, but I'm going to have your son do it. He gathered all the material because it was in his heart. And while Solomon actually put it together, had men put it together, it was David. It was in his heart. And, and, and Paul has in his heart to, to, to do this. And, um, and God knows what's in his heart. Let her be. The journey toward a goal can be more important than the arrival at it. The journey toward a goal can be more important than the arrival at the goal. We have a tendency to talk all about the arrival, but it's while on the journey that we grow. It's on the journey we are transformed. It's in the hardships on the way to the goal that we are matured. Paul, Peter, James all said, Rejoice when you find yourself in fiery troubles and trials. Because these things work patience and hope and character and faith. Um, Paul had a vision of what he wanted to do. And I don't think he was crushed by the fact that it did not come about as he had dreamed. Because Paul had learned the most important thing was to do the will of the Father wherever he was. Though his arrival in Rome was far different than he anticipated, I believe that Paul arrived just as he said he would. In verse 15 or verse 29, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I know that I will come to you in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. While I'm sure there were a whole lot of unpleasantries that Paul endured in his imprisonment, we can see that what man meant for evil, God turned for good. 
while Paul was chained to a Roman soldier, what did he do? He met with all kinds of people who came to visit him. He shared the gospel with the guys chained to him. Some of them got saved. Some of the people in the emperor's house got saved. Not only that, he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. We wouldn't have those four letters if he wasn't incarcerated for those, that time that he was there. He came in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. God was at work in that situation to, to make sure that his purposes came to pass. It came to pass. Now we skip two pages in my notes. I don't know where they went. So I've got to figure out where we're at on our list. Okay, well, we'll get down to, so what's the next slide? I appeal to you. He had a heart for prayer. Thank you. Paul had a heart for prayer. Romans 15.30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. He was a man who had a heart for prayer. I, I wanted you to see what happens when the people of God Pray together. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, this is when Jesus has spoken to those people who've gathered uh, on that mountain just before he ascends back into heaven to the Father. And he says, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait until you be endued with the power of the Holy Spirit. So the next slide should be Acts chapter 14, or Acts chapter 1. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And if you keep on reading, you come down to chapter 2. We don't want that verse yet. You keep on reading in chapter 2. And then when the day of Pentecost was fully come, and they were all together, there came the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Cloven tongues of fire sat upon them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. It was in a prayer meeting, a prayer meeting that the church was birthed. Because out of that prayer meeting, Peter preached a sermon. 3,000 people came to the Lord. If you go to Acts chapter 4, is that the next one? Acts In the fourth chapter, this is when Peter and John went up to the temple to pray, and they're at the gate beautiful. There's this guy begging, uh, and uh, Peter says, Look on us, and he does. Silver and gold I have none, but such as I have in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And the guy goes leaping and shouting and praising God in the temple, creates a, a bit of a scene for the Pharisees. The Sanhedrin brings Peter and John in and said, What are you doing? You can't preach in this man's name anymore. And they go back to the, to the church and they say, they told us we can't preach anymore, but we told them we got to do what God says and not what they said. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then that prayer goes on for five or six verses. The next verse says that, the, it ends with this. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In a prayer meeting, 
there was an outpour of the Holy Spirit that had empowered them to speak with boldness against the opposition. And the place was literally shaken by the presence of God. In Acts chapter 12, we read the story of Herod reaching out to vex the church. He had James, the brother of John, James Zebedee, he had him slain with a sword. And when he saw that it got him points with the Sanhedrin, he arrested Peter with the intention, tomorrow we're going to kill Peter. Acts 12.5 said this, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. You remember the rest of the story? That night, while he was sleeping between two guards, chained to two guards, Herod knew about things that happened with these people called Christians. The angel of the Lord came, told Peter to get up. They walked out of the prison. I guess the angel had the keys to the doors, whatever. And he walks out of the prison and he goes to the place where the church is praying. They weren't all praying. and They were all together, remember? And he knocked on the door. Rhoda come to the door. Who's there? Jesus. She goes back. She didn't even open the door. He's here. He's here. You're crazy, they said. I mean, they have been praying. Even when we are faithless in our prayer, when we call on the name of God faithfully in prayer, even when we don't believe it, God does miracles. Paul had a heart for prayer. Paul had a heart for prayer. So his request is this, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Every one of his letters, I believe, ends with him asking people to pray for him. That I might be bold, that I might speak the word. What was behind the mighty apostles' ministry? Why has it lasted for 2,000 years? What was it that opened the doors and gave him access into Caesar's household and before the throne of the emperor himself? Paul would tell you it was because of the prayer of God's people for him. He was well aware of the ministry prayer. He urges them to pray. I appeal to you, he said. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. Prayer is born of the Spirit of God within us. Prayer is born of the Spirit of God within us, awakening a desire to help, a sense of love and compassion. Spirit of God within us, crying out to the Father. Remember what it says in Romans, when we don't even know how to pray, the Spirit prays through us with groanings that cannot be uttered. We pray to honor the Lord Jesus. This is important. Most of the time we pray trying to get what we want. But as I read the scripture, the real power of prayer is when I begin to pray to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. To honor him. How did he teach us? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. My prayer this morning for Faith Family Christian Centers is that God will birth something new and fresh in our heart that calls us to pray. To pray for a fresh moving of the Holy Spirit in our midst. We're desperate for him. We're desperate for him. 
Each and every one of us need to have a heart of a missionary. A heart that sees our mission, our mission as sacred worship. Wherever God has placed you, in whatever your vocation, wherever your neighborhood, wherever your part in this body, God gave you a mission to live for Him and to honor Him as an act of worship every day. God, give us a heart that gives God credit for everything. A heart that gives God credit for everything. The heart of a missionary. The heart of a servant of God. A heart that has dreams and visions for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Oh God, birth new dreams and visions for the advancement of the kingdom. I shouldn't have looked at that, but um, I'm reminded of the prophet who spoke to the people of Judah and said, you have become complacent. You become complacent with where you're at. God's not pleased. It's so easy in church to become complacent with what we have. And we forget about the dreams and the visions that God wants to plan in our heart for bringing more people into the kingdom of God. God, give us a heart that prays passionately for the kingdom of God to come and His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. A heart that prays passionately for the kingdom of God to come and His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. When I'm reading that verse, to my mind comes the, the picture of Jacob when he's about to meet his brother whom he'd fled from some 20 years before. And you remember that he'd sent his family, sent all kinds of gifts. But as he's praying to God, an angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord, or the Lord himself comes and begins to wrestle, and Jacob begins to wrestle and said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Oh, that God would give us that kind of heart for a moving of His Spirit in this place and this day. Passionate for the kingdom of God to come. His will to be done on earth as in heaven. I want to sing a prayer that we've sang often. Stand with me and then we'll close.